Section 27 of Seven Roman Statesmen of the Later Republic by Charles Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Caesar, Part 3. To give a detailed account of the eight marvelous campaigns which laid Gaul at the feet of the great proconsul does not fall within the scope of our task we are concerned with the character of caesar as man and as general rather than with the annals of his battles and sieges in the main we must draw our conception of his work in gaul from his own commentaries what information we get from other sources is comparatively unimportant the book was published with a political object probably it was written in haste during the year b c fifty as a vindication and advertisement of the author's doings before the eyes of the roman public yet it compares favourably with most works issued with such a purpose it is reticent and business-like there is little self-laudation the greatness of the author's achievements is not dinned into the reader's ears but allowed to speak for itself moreover it is difficult to detect in the commentaries any very serious tampering with facts they give of course caesar's own view of his wars but they seem as little marred by a desire to hide reverses or to exaggerate successes as those of any other commander who has ever written the narrative of his own campaigns the general result of the war speaks for itself it is sufficient to look at the roman boundary in b c fifty eight and to compare it with that of b c fifty in order to see that the main result of caesar's activity was much what he claimed if minor checks are sometimes glossed over the final triumph was indubitably complete it can have been no ordinary conqueror who not merely subdued gaul but left it behind him so thoroughly tamed that during the subsequent civil war the once turbulent tribes made no serious attempt to rise and to rid themselves of the wholly inadequate garrison which had been left to hold them down there are many things which combine to make the conquest of gaul a less formidable undertaking than it appeared at the first glance if numerous and warlike the celtic tribes were fickle and faction-ridden a real national sentiment existed but there were other sentiments which were stronger wherever caesar went he found communities which were ready to join him in suppressing their neighbours either because of ancestral feuds or because of the self-interest of the moment gaul in the first century before christ was much like the highlands of scotland in the seventeenth or eighteenth century after christ it sufficed that one clan should espouse one rival cause and its neighbour out of ancient jealousy would take up the other a power intervening from outside would be certain of support from all the enemies of the dominant tribe or chief of the moment it has been truly said that caesar subdued gaul by the arms of gauls just as clive and wellesley subdued india by the arms of indians in each case the conqueror had a strong nucleus of national troops in his host but they would not have sufficed for his task if they had not been supported by thousands of local auxiliaries moreover in each case powerful native states backed the invader the Aedui and the Remi stood to Caesar in Gaul, much as the Nawabs of Awud and the Carnatic stood to the British in India. Nor was it merely intertribal feuds that made the foreigners' work easy. 
the factions within the several communities were almost as fiercely opposed and as disloyal to the common weal as the states in general were disloyal to the national cause of gaul a great proportion of the clans were torn to pieces by feuds between some predominant chief who aimed at regal power and the rest of the local oligarchy if the would-be tyrant was a nationalist the lesser chiefs called in caesar to help them if the oligarchs were nationalists it was their ambitious rival who made the appeal hence came the futility of the resistance of the gauls to the great proconsul they were always betraying each other the individual sacrificing the tribe the tribe the nation so much we gather from caesar's own works to the numerous instances which he gives there must have been many more to be added of which we have no knowledge every one of caesar's victories military or diplomatic was probably aided by local feuds and jealousies which an intelligent gallic witness could easily have explained but which are omitted in the pages of the commentaries whose author could only give the situation as it appeared to himself not as it appeared to his foes this is the reason why vercingetorix a man of real genius failed to hold together the patriotic confederacy which he had taken such pains to build up an appeal to gallic national feeling might rouse the tribes for a moment but after a few months particularism resumed its sway each one of the confederates suspected the rest of doing less than their share and then in sulky resentment resolved not to be exploited for the benefit of the neighbouring states it is certain moreover that the gauls even when they came together in the largest force cannot have put in line the enormous armies of which the commentaries speak it is always hard to calculate with accuracy the numbers of a tribal levee en masse no doubt caesar often doubled or trebled the real figures of the hosts that were opposed to him the ancients had an even smaller power of estimating or realizing large numbers than the men of the present age if we note the tendency among generals of to-day to swell the figures of savage hordes with whom they have had to deal we need not doubt that caesar was liable to the same failing every commander in such wars states his own resources at a minimum and sees those of the foe through a magnifying glass no doubt the two hundred thousand swords of the belgic army at the battle on the Aisne in b c fifty seven and the two hundred and fifty thousand men whom vercassivallaunus is said to have led to the relief of alesia are wild and reckless estimates yet probably they represent the numbers which the gauls believed that they had raised and which the romans believed that they had faced there is no reason to think that caesar invented them or added extra thousands to the figures which were reported to him the hordes were enormous there was no certain method of counting them the conqueror cannot be much blamed for reproducing the current estimate nor can we expect him to point out another fact which was certainly a great advantage to him of the wild masses which formed the gallic tribal levies only a certain proportion were really formidable fighting men the horse was excellent the chiefs and their bands of sworn henchmen and debtors were gallant and desperate foes but the main body of the en masse must have consisted of half-armed husbandmen like the english feared at hastings when the pugnacious and well-armed nobility and their retainers had been killed off in the forefront of the battle 
there must have been little power to resist among the ill-equipped horde which formed the bulk of the tribal host all this we state to explain caesar's triumphs not to diminish them if these antecedent advantages had not existed his task would have been impossible considering the very modest resources that were at his disposal even when all is conceded the achievement remains marvellous it was an intellectual and diplomatic triumph quite as much as a mere series of successful campaigns for it required even something more than a soldier of genius to carry the business through caesar fought with his brains utilizing the unrivalled knowledge of human weakness and vanity which he had acquired during twenty years of political intrigue at rome no less than his military skill he discovered how to turn to account all the personal and tribal rivalries and jealousies of the gauls he knew how to buy and how to retain allies and auxiliaries he could be a powerful and liberal friend but he was also an awe-inspiring enemy for nothing is more striking in all his career than the way in which this affable and easy-going conqueror had recourse to massacre on the most vast and ruthless scale when he desired to strike terror into his adversaries the reader of the commentaries shudders at the callous fashion in which their author narrates his deeds of bloodshed done not from any feeling of honest resentment but out of cold-blooded policy the veneti had placed in bonds not murdered or tortured some roman officers whom caesar had sent into their territory for this offence when they had been attacked and conquered their whole senate was put to death and the rest of the tribe sold as slaves this is not the worst there are cases where caesar puts it on record that his army slew not only the fighting men of a conquered enemy but the aged the women the infants every living soul on other occasions he mutilated many thousands of prisoners by cutting off their right hands of the case of the usipetes and tencteri whose fate moved horror and compassion even among romans we have already had occasion to speak while dealing with the life of cato nothing can give a more sinister effect than caesar's own confession that he received their ambassadors came to explain and apologize for a breach of truce put them in confinement and then marched without giving further notice against the unfortunate germans whom he surprised unarmed and cut to pieces to the number of four hundred and thirty thousand souls according to the account in the commentaries but the most repulsive of all caesar's acts of ruthlessness was one which has no parallel for long delayed and deliberate cruelty even in the dismal annals of the later republic when the gallant rebel vercingetorix freely surrendered at alesia to save the lives of his comrades caesar would have done nothing strange or improper if he had ordered him to be put to death on the spot the arvernian himself expected no less but for the conqueror to commit him to prison for six years and then to bring him out at his triumph parade him through the streets of rome and duly execute him in the tullianum shows a mixture of callousness and vanity for which no words of reproof are sufficiently hard after this caesar's admirers persist in telling us that he was naturally clement 
they point to the fact that during the civil war he very rarely put to death one of his captives and show that he pardoned some of the most irritating opponents when they fell into his hands remembering his awful doings in gaul we are driven to believe that his clemency was but a policy or a pose sulla had tried the method of proscriptions and it had been a failure warned by his experience caesar may have made up his mind to adopt the opposite policy in its most complete form the ides of march bear witness that this expedient also had its disadvantages augustus reverted to the methods of sulla but had the art to throw most of the odium on his colleague mark antony in the actual details of caesar's strategy and tactics in gaul there is much that is interesting at first sight they seem to involve some curious puzzles and contradictions on the one hand he was of all the great generals whom the world has seen the one who made the greatest use of the spade in a single campaign he would throw up more field entrenchments than napoleon or hannibal constructed in the whole of their military careers this tendency is usually the mark of a cautious commander and has for the most part gone along with slow movements small risks and a preference for the defensive but this same caesar who on some occasions stockaded himself up to the eyes and fortified every inch of ground that he covered blossomed out at other times into the most reckless ventures he would fly across the land with marches of almost incredible rapidity risk undertakings that combined the maximum of danger with the minimum of profit and stake his whole career on the most audacious strokes all in the style of charles the twelfth of sweden there is however no real incongruity in his actions it has only to be remembered that his final object was not so much the conquest of gaul as the building up for himself of an unrivalled military reputation and a devoted army his methods differed according to the necessities of the moment political as well as military and he was not the slave of any one system of tactics one does not associate him with any particular order of battle as we associate alexander with the advance in echelon with the cavalry leading or frederick the great with his famous oblique order or napoleon with the intense artillery preparation followed by a blow with heavy columns at one critical point of the adversary's line caesar was the least monotonous in his tactics of all the great generals whom the world has seen there is probably in this a trace of the fact that he was essentially an amateur of genius who had taken to war late in life and not a soldier steeped from his youth upwards in the study of the drill-book and the manoeuvres of the barrack-yard he worked by the inspiration of the moment rather than by the aid of the maxims of experience and the traditions of roman military art but speaking generally we may say that before he had thoroughly come to know the exact strength and value of his enemy and when no stake of vital importance was in question caesar was usually cautious in b c fifty eight while he was still new to his legions and while gaul and german were still known to him by repute only he used the spade with untiring energy and risked as little as he possibly could his first military act in gaul was to fortify lines of enormous length against the helvetii when he first met ariovistus he would not stir far from his camp and entrenched every point that he seized 
it was much the same when he made his earliest acquaintance with the belgi on the n he checkmated them by his impregnable position and held them at bay till they dispersed in the campaign about alesia in a similar way he executed field works of enormous length and magnitude making ditch and palisade serve in place of the numbers that were insufficient because he had not really the force required to perform the double operation of holding Vercingetorix blockaded and of keeping back the army of relief but even the elysian circumvallation and contravallation seem small things compared with the interminable lines which caesar erected along the hills above Dyrrhachium during the campaign of b c forty eight when however caesar was driven into a corner or when he was forced to choose between compromising his reputation and career by a retreat and running a grave risk he repeatedly staked everything on a single blow there often arises a moment in war when a commander has to decide between a movement which will be ruinous if it fails but decisive of the whole campaign if it succeeds and another which is safe but indecisive a general who is fighting merely to defend a frontier or to hold an enemy in check naturally chooses the latter course but caesar who was aiming at establishing a reputation and winning a dominant position among his fellow-countrymen often chose to accept the risk a thoroughly unsuccessful campaign even if accompanied with no crushing defeat would have lowered his prestige so much that his career would have been blighted he preferred rather to hazard everything on a bold stroke if he had failed he would probably have chosen not to survive the day but fortune was ever his friend and the possible disaster never came though it was often deserved caesar did not talk of his star though his friends invented one for him after his death but he had more reason to be grateful for unearned pieces of luck than any other great general in the world's history he might well have seen his career wrecked when he was surprised by the nervii on the sambre or when he was beset by overwhelming numbers on his march to samaro briva in b c fifty four or when the lines of alesia were all but pierced by the army of vercassivalaunus still nearer was the risk at Dyrrhachium, when before the arrival of his reinforcements he seemed doomed to inevitable destruction at alexandria the peril was quite as great and far more gratuitously incurred indeed the whole egyptian expedition was reckless almost beyond the bounds of sanity but fortune never failed caesar on the battlefield it seemed that he could not perish by the sword the dagger was his appointed doom in b c fifty gaul lay completely prostrate before the victor's feet for the first time he could turn his complete attention to roman politics without the fear of being distracted by some dangerous rebellion within his province this was the greatest of all caesar's strokes of luck for the breach with pompey in the senate was clearly at hand and every man of whom he could dispose would be wanted on the rubicon it passes our conception to guess what might have happened if vercingetorix had but delayed his great rising for two years and the general revolt of the gauls had occurred in b c fifty instead of in b c fifty two the declaration of open war by the optimate party might have reached caesar at the moment of some check like that which he suffered before gergovia 
or in the midst of a long protracted siege like that of alasia he could never have concentrated his army to march on italy it would have been completely tied up in the difficult gallic operations apparently the whole course of the world's history would have been changed if the arvernian chief had been a little more dilatory in his organization of the great national league but as things actually went caesar was as well prepared for the struggle as he could ever hope to be when the final crisis came his adversaries had even been good enough to supply him with a plausible casus belli and to refuse with contumely the many specious proposals for a pacification which he made to them that he had ever seriously intended that these proposals should be accepted it is hard to believe in return for a mere permission to stand in his absence for the consulship of b c forty eight he had offered to give up the transalpine province and eight of his legions if the optimates had accepted the terms he must either have found some excuse for drawing back from his plighted word or have been ruined by keeping it the only possible deduction seems to be that he was well aware that his enemies would refuse every offer however moderate which he might make to them his proposals therefore were only intended to influence public opinion and to cause cato pompey and his friends to appear in the character of the foes of a reasonable peace this was the actual result of the negotiations he was able to pose as a well-meaning citizen driven into war against his will and to claim that the passage of the rubicon was a mere act of self-defence his ingenious pleas will not stand examination least of all his solemn complaint that the optimates had violated the constitution by disregarding the vetoes of his friends the tribunes antony and cassius to any one who remembers how caesar himself had treated tribunes and their vetoes during his consulship in b c fifty nine it must appear ludicrous that he should urge this particular grievance against his adversaries we have already when dealing with the life of pompey explained the meaning of caesar's short and brilliant italian campaign he had seen that at this particular moment rapidity was the one chance of success without waiting even for his own main body to come up he had charged down into italy with headlong speed and struck his blow before the enemy could mobilize not only was he himself in his happiest vein but fortune was even more propitious than usual and his adversaries played into his hands the folly of domitius wrecked the last chance of the optimates and in the short nine weeks between december sixteenth b c fifty and february twentieth b c forty nine he had cleared the enemy out of the whole peninsula he had seized rome whose possession conferred a false air of legality on its master and at the same time he had occupied the whole recruiting ground where pompey had intended to raise those legions which were to start from the earth when he stamped his foot yet this was but the first act of the drama caesar's position was most precarious there was a widespread impression that his first success would be followed by massacres in the style of those by which marius and sulla had celebrated their capture of rome no one had forgotten that caesar's name had once been linked with that of catiline to cast a glance around the circle of his lieutenants was anything but reassuring assembled around him were all the notorious profligates and bankrupts of the day mark antony and curio caelius and dolabella vatinius and the rest they were a sinister crowd 
cicero called them the necuia the troop of vampires that any conqueror with such a past as caesar surrounded by such a gang of reprobates could be intending less than wholesale murder and confiscation seemed hardly possible it took a long time to convince the romans that they were not to expect red ruin and breaking up of laws and meanwhile public opinion would have welcomed the return of the respectable pompey even though his optimate friends were certain to make a clean sweep of the caesarians when they came back victorious it was necessary to strike a second blow as hard as the first had been if caesar was to retain what he had won if he lingered at rome the seven pompeian legions from spain would soon be heard of in the valley of the po and pompey himself the moment that he had collected a respectable army in epirus might descend from his ships on some unexpected point of the italian seaboard caesar had but two advantages the central position and the fact that he had a veteran army already mobilized while his foes were but drawing their levies together more than most generals he appreciated the value of time his one chance was to beat his adversaries in detail before they could combine even before they could get into communication and settle on a common plan of campaign it was certain that pompey could not be ready for many months on the other hand the army in spain was fit to move at once but was commanded by men whose measures caesar had taken long before commonplace soldiers without a stroke of genius hence came the dictator's determination to make a dash at spain in the spring with the hope of destroying or at least of defeating and disabling afranius and petraeus before pompey could assemble an army in epirus with which a general of his cautious character would dare to assault italy it was a most hazardous plan for if pompey had but risen to the occasion and cast off his methodical ways he would have found rome and italy weakly garrisoned against an attack but fortune was as usual in caesar's camp afranius and petraeus advanced almost to the foot of the pyrenees to meet him and allowed themselves to be outmanoeuvred beaten and taken prisoners at ilerda july second forty nine the pompeian army of spain was almost annihilated only in remote corners of the iberian peninsula did resistance linger on completely freed from the fear of an attack upon his rear by the pompeians of the west caesar could hurry back to italy to face the optimate army in epirus which was at last growing formidable in numbers and beginning to acquire a certain military value it mattered little to him that while he was victorious at ilerda his lieutenant curio had lost his life and his army while executing a daring but unlucky attack on the pompeians in africa the spanish business had been hazardous for all might have gone wrong for caesar if only his opponents had refused to fight him and had adopted guerrilla tactics after the fashion of sertorius had they refused battle and withdrawn into the mountains with their forces intact caesar would have been left in a quandary if he pursued them and was drawn into a long campaign italy might well have been lost behind his back if on the other hand he had refused to commit himself to operations in the interior of spain and had gone back to italy with his reserves he could not have spared an army sufficient to hold back the pompeian generals they would have driven in any covering force that he might leave behind and have once more begun to threaten his rear but they fought and were annihilated again caesar had been granted 
the one stroke of fortune that could save him. End of section 27